Hey, hello there. It's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, a.k.a. Harris Ensler, and you're listening to TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. A podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. Today, it's my great honor to have Kathy Abraham on this broadcast. Did I say broadcast? What are we on, radio? My guest for today's podcast is Kathy Abraham. Kathy, hi. Hey, Harris. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. We got the air conditioner going, so uh, <laughs> it's bearable. How about you guys? Doing okay down here in Georgia. It's a little warm as well, which we're used to, but likewise in here in the air conditioning with you today. So Good. Uh, thank you for having me on. Start off, just give us an idea of your neighborhood. We live in Lawrenceville, Georgia, middle-class community, middle to even upper in some segments of the area. We go to a top-notch school system, which I am a part of. I, I work for them. I am an elementary school teacher, and my husband owns his own business. So, you know, we have a comfortable life. People actually uh, seek us out to come and live in the area that we live in. Uh, it's like the old joke. Uh, how you doing? I make a living. No, are you comfortable? I make a living. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's us. That's it right there. In your story on VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, you said, quote, Joe lived fast and furiously from the day he was born. And that sounds familiar, maybe not as fast <laughs> as my son, but tell us a little bit about Joe. Yeah, Joe was one of those, he was he was born, he came into this earth just kicking and screaming to the point we're in the delivery room going, what is, what is that noise? Oh, that's your new baby boy. <laughs> Here he came, just fast and furious, and that's kind of how he lived his life, I felt like now in retrospect, but he was always trying to keep up with the big kids and wanted to be a big guy like his brother Matthew. So my parents and I, we talk about it all the time, but he, he was just a funny kid. We wish that we'd written down a lot of the Joeisms, but but he was just a funny kid. But when he wasn't funny, he was making a scowl face, you know. So it was either one extreme or the other, you know. He wanted to grow up quick, so he was always trying to hang with Matthew and his friends, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But um, I think as we progressed along in his journey, again looking back, that may have been something that wasn't to his advantage. Obviously, Joe was a sensitive young boy. He was had a great sense of humor. Turns out he was very creative. He liked to draw. He learned to play the piano. He always did things his way. So when he learned to play the piano, it's just kind of funny because Matthew learned with a book and everything. And Joe wanted to just play by ear. His music teacher, she worked with him and within his desires to do that and go off the beaten path, so to speak. He could look up a song on YouTube and then just go straight to the piano and play it. played baseball when he was younger and then he moved on to roller hockey but then he also loved to fish and that was his passion we joke about it because people would ask joe wow did your dad teach you how to fish and and joe would say no i actually taught my dad 
It's funny that you say, you know, he did it things his way. It's the same with Zach. Did you ever talk to him? I don't know, maybe he was 14, 15 or whatever, like what he wanted to be when he grew up. Anything outdoors, he wanted to be a guide. And then we talked to him about creating the trails that people hike upon. So it sounds like maybe he felt better in general when he was out there. I would have to say yes, Harris. I think that he did find a lot of peace outside and out in nature. And when we lost him four years ago, his backpack was out in the garage. This was a backpack. He had to have this backpack for hiking. Yeah. And his brother, Matthew, went out and I said, you know, take a look at Joe's pack and see if there's anything here you'd like and that sort of thing. Of course, it was very emotional to do that. But going through the pack, there were some things. And I said, wow, Matthew, you really taught Joe how to pack a good backpack. And Matthew turned to me and he said, no, mom, he taught himself how to do it. It's amazing. You knew that was coming, right? Too bad I didn't take Zach for more trips to nature because he wound up playing the drums in my basement. And we had issues with the uh, neighbors. The policemen came to the door. Well, and I always enjoyed both of the boys played instruments. There'd be times where Dave would be like, man, it's getting into 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. You know, they, they need to get to bed. It's, and I said, you know what? This is music to my ears. I loved hearing them practice, even when they hit the bad notes. You know, what I would give to have that music through my house right now. What would make Joe laugh? Ah, uh, you know, he and his best friends and his brother had another type of language that they spoke. Not pig Latin, but yeah. they, would, they would say these words or just give each other a look and they would just bust out laughing. The other thing that made Joe laugh was we would pick on dad, you know? <laughs> his dad is an easygoing guy, but we always would make fun of him just for fun, yeah. The guy who makes the music for our podcast. He's one of his best friends. He told me a story just by what was going on and watching Zach a certain movement. They couldn't help but just blurt out this during a class. Well, and I was just thinking that, Harris, because Joe, Joe would get in trouble in school, in middle <laughs> school, like when a sub came on. Oh, yeah. He would change letters on the whiteboard to make them be, you know, and he would do anything to get his buddies to laugh. I think we've covered your favorite story about him, yes? A good memory that we have is that he wanted a dog. I had a colleague at work that had a dog, but they were moving. She wasn't able to be with the dog as much. So I said, well, we'll give him a trial run. And he was a little dog. You know, Joe, being Joe was like, you know, mom, I want a real dog, you know. So he got on the internet and researched dogs and found this dog that needed to be adopted. And that dog took straight to him. And in fact, Henry's in the other room and oh. he was Joe's dog all the way through, never left his side, you know, when he was here. said he started to interact with drugs when he was like 15? Right. No, yes. that's about right. I'd say in the transition from middle school, which we have mm -hmm. in Georgia, goes to eighth grade yes. to high school is when we started seeing it. You know, catching him taking beers from the fridge, 
smoking with his friends. We started seeing that. Holy shit. Hey, you want some beer? <laughs> There's so many of them. What's up, bro? Cigarettes? Never really saw the cigarettes. No, just, yeah, marijuana. That's when we started to see what we thought was normal teenage experimentation. And his buddies are doing the same thing. It kind of gets to a point where it's becoming a consistent thing. In eighth grade, he had a fantastic year. I mean, he was top of the class and he was athletic and, and good looking and smart. Well, that, that year, one of his friends in eighth grade, one of our neighborhood families, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and then passed away not long after. And that really hit him hard. And then on top of that, a young man in his class, a Hispanic boy, was swimming in our local lake one weekend and drowned. So he had two young friends pass away in his eighth grade year. And I remember coming home from work one day and he had his head on his desk and he was just crying. And he said, Mom, everybody's dying. That's traumatic. You know, and I remember I remember comforting him, but I, I don't know that I realized the extent of how that had impacted him. That's something that a lot of people cite, that childhood trauma might be a precursor to someone being prone to addiction. Mm. A lot of the studies have borne that out. And of course, I, I wouldn't know that, you wouldn't know that, but I think it's a reality. Who knows what that childhood trauma might have done to him and his brain. Yeah, I mean, I even found that he was cutting and I didn't understand what that was at the time. I just like, honey, you, you can't do that to yourself. What do you do? You know, what are you doing? And again, like you say, it was probably to take the pain away. You know, he started high school and was signed up for advanced classes. He had gotten in trouble over the summertime with some buddies. They were drinking and things that they shouldn't be doing. And it hit social media. And so then they got in trouble with the baseball coach. He was smoking pot, though, we found out, and then doing that quite consistently. Starting his sophomore year, we get emails through our county system if they're not in school. I started seeing these attendance situations coming up, not in school or left half day. And I'm like starting to wonder what's going on, what's going on. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when I went to school, you went and you stayed there. So he wanted to gear back from his schedule. Instead of going accelerated, he wanted to move to college prep, which I found that to be interesting, unusual. And I don't know that I completely picked up on it. Again, that's just being naive. And, and my older son just went that track. And then I did in school. We just did it. That's what you do. And then at one point, he did get suspended for texting that somebody wanted marijuana and ah. I can get it for you, you know. And then so it's just this trying to figure out what's what with high school. And then again, with the baseball coach, they didn't want the parents communicating with the coach. They wanted these kids to be, you know, big guys. And I felt out of the loop. Did Matt ever talk to him about this? I think they did, but I didn't want to be that mom to put Matthew in the right. middle of it all. Right. Joseph looked up to Matthew and respected him. I didn't want to interfere, but I wanted, I think I, we would just say, hey, Matthew, you talk to your brother. And I didn't want to pry which I probably, in retrospect, should have pried oh, a little bit more. Yeah. yeah, we can do the woulda, coulda, shouldas all day long. Oh, we did. We have. I, I had to find a different way for Joe, just like the way he learned to play the piano. Right. We had to find a different way. Again, I wished I would have seen this sooner in my son, but he was smart and he was going along. And 
So we found a high school in our county that is for kids that aren't doing really, he didn't like school. It's like an alternative school. Oh, there you go. Thank you. I worked in an alternative school. My district had one. So all these things you're telling me, even though I had all this, nothing about Zach like dawned on me, even though I knew a lot of, a lot of stuff, but not so much about the drug stuff. So you can't blame yourself. But I was pleased that I was able to break out of my box of how education is supposed to work for everyone. (laughs) And now I do talk to parents and friends about this, but we have other ways of learning, which we both know, but yet not my kid. My kid's doing it this way. But so the alternative school, and I had a friend that was the assistant principal at our local alternative high school, and we went over and talked to her. I was really impressed with the entire school. And I thought, what a great way to reach out to kids that aren't doing so well. Or So Joe enrolled at this high school. It was three days a week. He took a couple classes. So he was doing okay. If you miss three days of school at this particular school, then you're out. Wow. They don't mess around. Once again, we're getting him to school and then he's not there. <laughs> One day I was at a doctor's appointment And I drove over to the high school. His truck wasn't there. He was skirting everything. And it just got to the point where I was at my breaking point. I said, you know what? I told my husband, I said, you know what? Take him down to the school and unenroll him. I'm done. We're dropping out. And again, this this was a culmination of just day to day to day to day to day of battling it. And then he worked landscaping for a while. And I think the drug use was escalating at this point. He would be sleeping a lot. He would be adverse, combative at times. It was like pulling teeth to get anything done. And But I think, again, it was the drugs playing into it. So we get this car in a wreck, and then this car is in a wreck, and then he's got this, and we're being called. And la, la, la. So yeah, he did drop out of school. Sadly, he had a job, but he was in landscaping. In my brain, I am thinking. Physically, I do a bunch of bullshit labor. He was highly allergic to poison ivy. There was always these kinds of things that were interfering. And then he did the pizza delivery for a little while. The car that he was driving, our Volvo that got good gas mileage, got in a wreck. The truck didn't get good, you know, so we couldn't do the pizza delivery. It wasn't cost effective. I mean, I know most of the parents that are listening or people that have gone through this can just, you know, understand that there was always something going on with Joe. Did he ever... I have an apprehension of the fact that things weren't right with him. Did he ever think that he had a problem? We did have him in counseling. He went to a psychiatrist, a group where he was on some medication for, I think, depression and anxiety. I think that the smoking and the drugs made him feel normal. Right quote unquote. And when he was going through this trouble at first, going into his freshman year, we got him some counseling, but I don't know how effective that was because he could charm the pants off you. I mean, I'd pick him up and the therapist would tell me, oh, and I'm like, is this the same kid? You know, because I mean, he's doing great. And I was like, oh my God. He was fronting, you know? And then they had him on the medications and he would see the psychologist once a month. 
it got to a point there where he was self-medicating on top of his medications and they refused to see him any longer. It was just, yeah. Did they understand that at a boy of his age, having all these different drugs plus the marijuana affected his brain chemistry? Yes. I remember there was a session or two where they actually went through that, the whole brain. Yeah. And the psychiatrist was encouraging him to get off of that. And then of course, I don't like that psych. I want to see a different one. I was like, okay. I don't know how much I truly understood it at that point. And I was hearing it, sitting in on it. But sadly, I I didn't understand how much he was really doing. You know, back in 2005, I had, look, I had no clue. I'm saying, no, come on, he's not doing this stuff. There's no way. I mean, I didn't find out till he kind of came home and maybe he couldn't find some stuff. And he just really was jonesing, as they say. And he broke down and we took him to the hospital. And mm-hmm. But when did things get really bad? Probably 16. I hate to say this, but we were trying to keep this ship afloat. We were trying to like, you're okay. You know, let's, let's get to practice. You're okay. Let's, you know, we got this. And I remember a baseball game where he had a meltdown. We ended up taking him to a local psych place. He asked to go, like, I need help. I need help. We had a hard time finding an appropriate place where he could get that help. How did it go down when he was doing the heroin and all that stuff? I don't know that he was doing heroin while he was still under our roof. But when he was 18, he and a couple buddies on Halloween decided that they were going to break into a local concession stand for money, which at the time he was working and doing pretty well, you know, financially, I thought. When the police come knocking at your door at four o'clock in the morning, wanting to know where your son is, and I'm like, it's not good. That was a felony charge. So things began to kind of pile up on Joe. So this went on and on, and what happened when he was 19? He was working, and we believe he was doing Xanax on his birthday, October 12th of 2016. I remember coming through the door, and I saw him on the couch, dead to the world, like no movement, like he's out. He didn't wake up till later, and that's when he realized he'd missed his birthday. His birthday was like his favorite thing. Along the way, as we were seeing him struggle, I would research rehabs and places he could go, places I could afford as an educator with my insurance, and he would refuse every time. And when he turned 18, as an adult, he could refuse that. That evening, his dad and I sat down with him one more time, but we had a different tone about it. You know, Joe, you really need some help. We have a place you can go and we can get you there. And, and I didn't try to push it because he'd always said no. He would had his head hanging and he said, I'll do it. And I just was kind of stunned, like, really? You know, like, I'll believe it when I see it. But yeah, I think that that was the turning point. Besides the legal issues over his head, and we at that point we had an attorney and he was supposed to go to court. And we knew that him going to rehab would be a good thing for him legal-wise as well as for Joe himself. How did that turn out going forward for him? It was a 30-day program, which at the time felt like an eternity for him never having really been gone from us for more than a couple days. 
he made it there and they took good care of him. You know, once he could make phone calls, again, he was not happy. He was short with me. He was upset, you know, but he, he did well. Eventually he did well. It was interesting because it, talking to his counselor, they had a piano in the chapel and that was one of his therapies. And she would sit and listen to him play that piano. Yeah. So it ended up being good. We were trying to figure out next steps. We uh, researched some places, lots of good outdoors areas and sober living homes that were very, very expensive. Sure. (laughs) Insurance doesn't cover them, but we're going to make it work. They had Joe call there and they talked to the the gentleman in charge and they felt like it was a good fit. (laughs) It was good for a little bit. When we moved him in, I had just some questions about it in my mind. You know, Joe seemed happy with it. He was meeting people and he, I wasn't getting the full story. So I guess this was a few months before what happened. So he was there over Thanksgiving, which was very painful for him not to be with the family. And then in December, he was allowed to leave for a couple days and we met him up there and did a little Christmas. But at that time, he then admitted to us that some of the guys were drinking at the sober living. I was like, okay, we get, and I was upset. I'm like, we're pulling the plug. You're out of here. No, no, mom. No, you know, um, they're giving me some leadership responsibilities and I'm speaking up and telling the guy, you know, and I was just like, oh gosh, you know, it didn't feel right, but I was like, okay, Joe, all right. You know, I want you to be a leader and so on. Sure. Anyway, so he gets back from Christmas and then New Year's comes along and we get a call that he's relapsed on New Year's and now he's kicked out of the sober living because he came back from the relapse and got in a fight. We get him into another sober living there. You know, it just, I, I think that was the end of it. Yeah. So he had a car. We'd given him the car at Christmas because he was going to be interviewing for a landscaping position up there. After that point that he got kicked out, he got picked up for crossing the lines and um, they put him in jail. In trouble with the law again, right? He had these things hanging over his head. And it was complicated. He got in trouble with the law in a different state, but he's on probation in the state of Georgia. They gave him permission to go there for sober living. And then when he broke that probation, they're encouraging us not to bail him out. So we didn't bail him out. We got a phone call every day begging us, begging, begging, begging. It was painful. Of course. And it got to a point where then we no longer could bail him out because now he's in custody of our county in Georgia and they're coming to get him. It was just, it was horrible. We were able to see him once a week and um, then he just had to wait for his court date to come up. What was the result of that court date? You know, so Joe went before the judge the first time. They gave him the time he needed to spend, what have you. He came back before the judge again Our judge was not there. So another judge sat in for him, was talking to Joe and realized in the conversation, she said, this young man has a problem. He has a serious problem. We need to get him additional help. And I was thinking that day he'd be released. And we're like going, whoa, who is this? But I'm thinking, yeah, he does need additional help. They send him back. We meet with this other person about this facility down South Georgia. He gets put back in the cell, but then they have these people come interview him to see if it's a match. Well, it was a match. So he's going to go to this facility in South Georgia to get the additional help that he needs, state provided, but we're waiting on a bed. So he's in jail still. So we're going on like four months in jail, just waiting, waiting, waiting on a bed, you know. 
So in the meantime, his original judge calls him in front of the court again. I'm like, what's this about? We go before the judge. It, it was as if he didn't even know that that whole thing had is, existed. And so he's telling him, time served and you're going to be out in two weeks. All of a sudden, it's like, what? You know, what's happening? Well, you know, our attorney had spoken with Joe and of course, Joe wanted out. <sighs> the problem is, and I don't want to get on my high horse about it, but we've already mentioned the fact that what it does to their brain is that these young people that are 18, 19 are being treated as adults. So therefore, they're making their own decisions, which they are not physically capable of making. Of course, with all the problems he has. So he's telling our attorney that he wants out and then he's going to do outpatient rehab once he gets out. And we had researched some places and we're like, okay, you know, we have some options. I really didn't want him coming home. Right. I don't blame you. You know, and I remember the Sunday that we went to visit him. He said, mom, I'm going to be coming home. I'm, I'm going to get out of here. I'm getting out of here. And I just sat there and he's like, you don't look real happy about it. And I was like, well, honey, of course we miss you, but I just don't think it's the best decision for you right now. So he got out and we had even talked in our visits that you've been clean for this many months now. You can't do any drugs. You're not used to any level of drug now. You don't have any tolerance. I won't, mom. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You know, we always got that. And I said it every time. And he always reassured me every time. Well, he got released on Mother's Day of 2017. And it was a fantastic Mother's Day present. You know, we took him home and he and I went out and played tennis and then we had a cookout and we just had the best day, you know, and he looked great. I mean, he was fit. I mean, he'd been working out, but uh, it didn't take but a couple days before he started drinking. He got in trouble at our pool. He relapsed. He relapsed. I needed to call the probation officer, but we felt like we're going to try to handle this. I went to uh, an event that was in our county. One of the one of the Superior Court judges and our senator was running this because they were very much aware of the opioid epidemic that was going on. And I thought, you know, I need to go and learn more about this to the point where Joe was going to come with me, but he worked late and he was going to take a friend to an AA meeting. Okay, sure. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah you do that. So I went to this meeting and it was the first time I learned about fentanyl. Had never heard of it. Never, never, ever. Yeah, I met my husband afterward for some dinner and I talked to him. I said, yeah, we learned about this fentanyl. The person that, that gave the information, he said, you know, if you got fentanyl in your system, then that's, it's a death sentence, something yeah. like that. That very next day, he went off to work. So I saw him Thursday morning when he went off to work and I never saw him alive again. That Thursday night, he was supposed to be home on time, and he wasn't. So my husband went to get him. He was at a friend's, and he came home, and Dave said he was seemed fine. He was lucid. He went back into his room and was watching TV, and Dave went up there and gave him his regular medication, his regular meds that he'd been taking. Dave left the room, and he said, I love you, Joe. And Dave said, I love you. And he said, I'll get you up in the morning for work. And he went to bed. I got up the next morning. I was taking my shower to go to work. I heard my husband screaming and I thought, oh no, they're, they're fighting again. And I grabbed the towel around me and ran out into the hall. And my husband said, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. Kathy, this is bad. This is bad. So I just, I ran back into Joe's room and I thought maybe he had a cut and was bleeding. And I went back there. I knew as soon as I saw him, you know, 
you know, you always hear about this kind of thing and you're like wondering, how do they really know? But um, I'm a first responder and all I had to do was just touch him and I knew. And that's how I found out. I don't remember much after I found out. I had to travel to Boston. You know, we got that phone call and then I knew, once I got that call, I said, that's it. Because I was learning more and I kind of knew if you overdose, it's pretty hard to come back from that. And I don't, they didn't have Narcan and that was that. If you could say anything to Joe right now, what would it be? I would say to him that I love him. And I'm really sorry that he had to go through this. I would say that I'm proud of him. I never really thought that I would ever say that going through what we went because I loved my son, but there were so many days that I didn't like him a lot at all. Of course. Once I realized what he was living, the disease that he was challenged with, I was just so proud of him. He really, really tried. I know. I hear you. When I looked at his phone, which I, nobody wanted me to look at the phone, I mean, you know. <sighs> But I saw in the few text messages that I read the torture that he was feeling, that tap on the shoulder, that nag. But the good thing about it, Harris, was that the two nights before that, he and I sat up with his dad outside. It was a beautiful summer night. And we sat out back and just talked and had the best conversation. He'd been to visit a, uh, a technical school and was so excited about going to the school and the possibility, and they had a river that ran right through the middle. He could fish and he'd go to school. I just, I know that that was a gift from God that I had that time with him. Because between that and just seeing him the next morning, that was the last I'd seen of him. I've told this story to some of the moms in, in my Warrior Moms group and in our grass group, but he was hustling to get ready for his landscaping job. And he came to me that morning. He said, Mom, I've got a splinter in my finger. You know, and I'm trying to hustle to get to my own work and he's right. trying to hustle... And it, it just always struck me as strange looking back at that moment that he had a splinter in his finger. And I took the time to get that splinter out of his finger. You know, it was just that, like that final act of love that I gave mm. for him. As I listened to my conversation with Kathy about her journey through OUD, I can't help think of how important it is for everyone to get information about this dreaded epidemic. Had she and my family been educated before our tragic outcomes, we probably would have understood the insidious nature of this disease. We might have had a better outcome. If we had known what to look for and the steps we needed to take, we would have had some hope to hang on to. Had we realized how addicted individuals might act in certain situations, even when they were in remission, our sons might have still been with us today. That's why, listeners, learn as much as you can and don't be ashamed. Okay, so now we come to a different area of this whole problem, the stigma. Did the stigma of Joe being involved in drugs, did you feel that at all? The only reason that I did was because I am an elementary school educator in one of the top counties in the United States. And I just felt like I'm a teacher. No. Here I am teaching all these young people, but yet I'm leaving home every morning, not knowing what I'm going to wake up to, 
what's going to happen next. It was chaos at home, but yet now I've got to put on my happy face. I didn't really divulge that information to only but maybe two or three folks, my principal and maybe two of my closest colleagues. I was embarrassed. Yeah. Hey, join the club. So did you tell people what happened when he died? I told the entire world. (laughs) Well, on the day this happened, it turns out that our neighbor down the street, her son, passed away the very same morning. You're well aware of their story, Lisa's story and Dustin's story. When this happened, I I mentioned that it was chaos in my house, and I had no idea until about 11 o'clock that morning that down the street, another young man had lost his life. Same way, same dealer, not the same drug. They were totally not together, which was another thing that crossed my mind when I found out. I was so worried that maybe Joe hadn't been involved. You know, I didn't want him to be that person to... This particular day was the high school graduation of the high school that he was at, both the boys. So many, many of their friends were going off to graduate. It was a two o'clock graduation. And this had just happened. The news got hold of it because they were very, very concerned. These kids that are graduating would have their graduation parties and maybe get hold of the same, you know, batch. Sure. So the news folks were out and about all over our neighborhood. And there was a news crew right in front of our neighborhood clubhouse. And my sister's like, I'm going to go over there and talk to them. Do you want to talk to them, Kathy? And I'm like, I don't know. So I see my sister go across the street. She's waving to me. I'm like, okay. I walked across the street. and Good for you. They talked to me and they said, do you mind going live with us? And I said, I don't care. You know, I don't care anymore. Yes, I will do it. And all of a sudden it just was this weight just came off of my shoulders and this this burning kind of anger mad that my my son's dead and you know I don't want this to happen to anybody else around this area and so yeah it hit the news and we were on the news quite a bit so obviously we've talked and you you didn't had no idea about the drugs and the signs and and yet people to this day still have this idea about it's something to be shameful about why do you think people still have this stigma? Why, why is there still stigma about this disease? For so long, there's been such a stereotype of what a typical addict looks like, where they live and how they function. And we learned really, really fast that this does not discriminate against anyone. I believe it's still there. This can't happen to me is the thought process for so many people. You know, in the county that I live in, I've given you some background on that. This wasn't happening in our county. No, no, no. It wasn't going to happen. But when it did, I just felt like, and the other mom and I, we felt like, here we are. We're the face of this county, and yet we're going to speak out. And so if it can happen to us, it can happen to anybody. But I think that people also feel like it's a reflection upon themselves, I immediately was, I'm a bad mother. I am, we're awful parents. We're awful, awful, awful. And and we spent time looking back at pictures and home movies. And I remember coming to the revelation, not that it was a revelation, but it was for me after this happened. And I turned to my husband, I said, you know, we really, we were really good parents. You know, we really were good parents. You know, we looked at all the footage from our video camera and how, how loving and we, you know, what our family did. But I think that people, they become very defensive that this has happened in my family and it's a reflection on me, but it's truly not. Zach died 
15 years ago, his birthday is Friday. I've lived with this. It took me a good seven, eight years to finally come to grips with that. And I learned more and I started doing what I'm doing and I don't feel that way anymore. It's not because of me, it's he was sick. You stated in your story here about Joe, you know, Joe smoked, he was doing okay, which brings to mind the treatment option now, you know, of MAT, medication assisted treatment. So Joe maybe was at the forefront because his brain told him, I need help to make him feel better. He smoked marijuana. Zach didn't do anything until he graduated high school. I couldn't believe that, but he had music. So that really filled up his time. Do you think that's something, a good tool for this society to use at this point? Tell me more about medical assisted treatment. Like Suboxone? I do agree that there should be some medical assisted treatment, but I don't know that Suboxone is is the way to go. And the other thing is you talked about the court issues, which goes into the laws in this country, the federal laws, and the schedule of drugs that the federal laws operate on. If you change the scheduling of drugs, even like heroin, that would allow federal money to go to hospitals, colleges, universities that do research. Mm-hmm. Because look, if you want heroin, you can get it. Let's, let's face it, we're never going to stem the tide of illegal drugs. Didn't work with prohibition. Doesn't, doesn't work with anything. So why not lobby our lawmakers to say, look, we want more research. You guys are holding all these federal funds. Let's get that money out there that you can give to the states, give to the universities to maybe figure out how we can, whatever it may be, and not Suboxone or even Vivid, whatever it is. I mean, it's something they got to find. To me, the most humane thing to do is to keep a person alive until we can finally figure out scientifically how we can defeat this animal. I mean, Oregon is trying. You know what they're doing in Oregon? They don't. It's off to a rocky start because they don't have the facilities, but they're not arresting people with heroin. And if they come in, even if they're arrested or not, they will tell them, okay, we'll give you clean needles. We'll keep you alive. And to me, that's what we want to do. We want to preserve human life. I think that they do some of that in Europe as well. Yes. Yes. And Um, they're beating it. Right. So instead of like walking into a dispensary, you can get, like you said, clean heroin, clean needles. There's nothing in it, no fentanyl. And you can get treatment if you desire and we'll pay for it. The government will pay. That to me would be a huge step forward. Sadly, the legal system might be stepping over my boundaries, but in a, in a probation situation, we are encouraging people to use other drugs so that they can pass their urine test when they go back in for probation. And I know that that was happening. My son, I'm not condoning his marijuana use, but he was a pretty okay kid on marijuana. Yeah. And I know people talk about marijuana being a gateway drug. And in this situation, maybe it was, I'm not sure, but the legal system pushed him to use other drugs because, oh yeah, that'll go through my system faster and I'll pass my test when I go for probation. One of the people I interviewed said, the gateway drug is really alcohol in this country. It's not looked down upon. It's okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Tell us what you've been doing in terms of advocacy. 
Since we lost Joe, right around that time, we were beginning to partner with a local organization here in Lawrenceville called Navigate Recovery Gwinnett. All the proceeds from, you know, if anybody wanted to donate in care and loving memory of Joe, it would go to Navigate Recovery. I decided that in the moment on that day. Wow. Um, and they were just getting their feet underneath them. This is a local organization that, that we work with. They're doing fantastic work and it's all free. The founder approached me not long after at all and said, you know, Kathy, I've been really, one of my visions is to create a scholarship strictly for people in recovery to help them because people don't understand the legal expenses, things that hold them back that they can't get. And they really, truly need money to, if they want to go back to school, would you be interested in setting up a scholarship in Joe's name? I'm like, of course. I mean, I'm in education is right up my alley. So we set up a scholarship through a, a local technical college. We've given out, started out with $500 and then we moved it up to a thousand. We've given out, I think five or six scholarships, but this year we moved it under the Navigate Recovery umbrella so that we have more flexibility. We can give the scholarship to any person in recovery or any person that's been adversely impacted by someone that's gone through substance use disorder. So a family member can apply for it. So really, really excited. It's the uh, Navigate Recovery Honor Joe Scholarship, and it's for people that will be attending school in any Georgia college. So if anybody out there is in recovery or has been adversely affected and would like to attend school in Georgia, yes, it's uh, available. So that's a really fantastic thing. We're also involved in our local GRASP group. My husband runs those meetings. That's for grief recovery after a substance passing. I'm in one. Yep. That has been a lifesaver for us. And then as I was going through this process and meeting people, I started making a list of all the moms I was meeting, all the people I was meeting. And this list became longer and longer and longer. And I thought, you know, I'm going to start a group just for moms, Good. you know, here. And we, and we met at my house and we call ourselves the warrior moms. That has just been very therapeutic. So many moms that were never outspoken have come to this meeting and felt very comfortable in sharing. I'd like to say it's, it's saved a lot of us and helped a lot of us kind of navigate through this journey. One last thing for the people that are listening is, you know, the Narcan training is so, so important. And like you say, if we can save a life and we can keep people alive, we can give them hope and give their parents hope and give their family hope. We just recently had a Narcan training. We had an Honor Joe Memorial Night right around his anniversary in May. We partnered with a local health department here. You know, I was encouraging people to come and get trained for Narcan training is not just for people that have someone that they know or love right. that's struggling. It can be anybody and it can happen to anyone. Sadly, we've had some uh, kids lose their lives in our county that it was an experimentation. They've never done drugs before and that one pill can kill you. So I really encourage people to get trained for Narcan. It takes literally 20 to 30 minutes, no time at all. The Narcan is free. And just to carry it with you wherever you could come across anybody that's overdosing and you can help save their life. It's in my car. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at These Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like.
Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. To learn more about the work Kathy Abraham is doing, please visit Navigate Recovery at navigaterecoverygwinnett.org and Grieving Moms at grievingmoms.com. And as Zach used to say, peace out.